If you have a Bible, turn to Luke 22. We're going to be looking at Luke 22, verses 54 to 62. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be projected on the screen. If you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is a heavy text. Luke 22, starting in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this morning, I'm going to tell you how to know if you're truly loyal to your team. And when I say team, it may be your favorite NFL team. It may be... um, the political party that you support. It may be your daughter's marching band, but a team that you're really into. There's one surefire way to know if you're truly loyal. And it may not be what you'd expect because it's not the amount of competitions that you go to or the amount of merch that you buy or anything like that. It comes down to one little word. When Tampa Bay won the Super Bowl, there were people all across Florida the next day saying, we won, we won. And some of, some of us uh, had been rooting for the underdog for years and had been waiting for that moment. Some of us had never watched a Tampa Bay game in our life until the Super Bowl. But after they won, we won. But then what do you do when your wife texts you and says, honey, who won the game? when your son's soccer game has just ended and you text back and say, they played hard, but they lost. Do you see the difference? It's very subtle. Most people tend to say we when their team wins, but say they when their team loses. And psychologists actually study this tendency and it's referred to as berging and corfing which uh, sounds like, you know, something a cat does with a furball. <laughs> but Berging stands for Basking in Reflected Glory. It's an acronym. Basking in Reflected Glory. And Corfing stands for Cutting Off Reflected Failure. This is the point. We want to be identified with winners, and we want to separate ourselves from losers. So do you want to know 
how to tell if someone's really loyal to their team. When they lose, they'll say, we lost. We lost that one. And in today's passage, it was starting to look a lot like Jesus was losing. And when Jesus started to look like a loser, Peter distanced himself from him. And these few verses take place just over the course of the night, really just a few hours. And so it's just a snapshot of Peter, but it's a defining one. And as we walk through the passage, I want you to try to envision this story unfolding like you were watching a movie. And I'll try to connect it to some flashbacks and some flash forwards from other passages that tell us more about Peter. And hopefully you'll also see how Peter's story connects to your own. But this passage picks up right after Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss in the garden. It's the story that Tyler talked about last week. And just a few verses before today's passage starts in 52, it tells us that the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders had come out against Jesus. So picking up in our passage today in verse 54, it says, then they, and the they is the chief priests and officers of the temple, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. Now, legally, at the time, the high priest was a man named Caiaphas, but his father-in-law, Annas, had been the high priest, but he had been deposed by Rome, but most Jews still recognized Annas as the one who should be in power. And so even though on paper he wasn't the high priest, he still had a lot of influence. And Jesus would eventually stand trial in front of Annas and in front of Caiaphas. And Annas and Caiaphas actually lived at the same palace. So the Jewish authorities brought Jesus to the courtyard of this palace. And then I want you to notice that verse 54 says Peter was following at a distance. I want you to flash back to when Peter had first met Jesus. You may remember the story. Peter had let Jesus come onto his fishing boat so that he could push out a little bit and preach from the boat to a multitude that was on the shore. And then right after Peter heard Jesus preach, which was undoubtedly powerful, Jesus allowed Peter and the other fishermen who had fished all night without catching anything to catch so many fish that their net couldn't even hold it. It was a miracle. And when Peter saw this, he fell, he fell to Jesus' knees and he called him Lord. And Luke tells us that when Peter and his fishing partners had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. And you may remember from other sermons what it meant for disciples to follow a rabbi in first century Israel, for disciples to follow a Jewish teacher like Jesus. It was said that they followed so closely that the dust of the rabbi would get on the clothing of the disciples. And for around three years, Peter had followed closely Rabbi Jesus, seeing the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven, 
But yet on this night, Peter followed Jesus at a distance. And verse 55 tells us that these Jewish authorities kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together and that Peter sat down among them. And at this point, I want you to stop and try to imagine what Peter was trying to do. What was his goal here? I mean, we've all heard this story, but if you really think about it, it's like, what was he up to? I imagine that uh, Peter was probably still all amped up from when he left the garden. Because according to John, when the authorities came to arrest Jesus, Peter cut a dude's ear off. Like he was fired up, you know, and his adrenaline's still pumping. And I think maybe Peter had in mind to take Jesus back by force. He was just going to Rambo his way in and take on a whole army. Maybe he was even trying to pose as one of them as he sat down among them by the fire. But as his endorphins wore off in the chill of the night and Peter's fatigue set in, he lost his resolve and the reality also set in. He's sitting here in the dark, way outnumbered by the people who just seized Jesus. He acted before he thought and he doesn't have a plan. So now all he can do is wait and see what happens. But in verse 56, it says, then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. And in that split second, Peter realizes he's blown it. I imagine him thinking to himself, stupid, stupid. Why did I get so close to the light? I've made it this far and then I make a dumb mistake. Because why? Because I'm cold? It's just like Jesus said. He kept telling me to stay awake. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And of all the people to notice Peter, it was a servant girl. Servant and girl. In that society, she was the lowest of the low. And yet it wasn't the disciple of Jesus Christ who recognized the truth and proclaimed it that night. It was this servant girl. And it strikes me that the servant girl was able to see Peter because the light exposed his face. And the light always exposes the truth. But Peter said, woman, I don't know him. And it was a lie. And maybe Peter had this very moment in mind years later when he referred to Jesus as him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, we're so scared to step into that light. We cower in the dark because we know we're naked and ashamed, we're dirty. There's this huge part of us, every single one of us, that desperately wants to be known, that desperately wants to be loved, but we're terrified to be seen. But what happens if you dare to step into that marvelous light, the light of the world, is you find that the light itself clothes you in righteousness. You find that you are clothed in Christ. And this morning, if you find yourself sitting in the shadows, I pray, may God grant you the faith 
to step into the marvelous, marvelous light of Jesus. That you may be clothed in Christ. But that night, that earth-altering night, Peter cowered in the dark and denied that he even knew Jesus. And it's not exactly clear why Peter lied. It's understandable because he feared for his life, I imagine. Um, As the scene unfolds, Jesus is being questioned. And right after this, he's going to be beaten it's not honorable that people, Peter lied, but I think it's understandable, right? But it's also curious that the Jewish authorities, they had all of the disciples in one place at one time. And they could have taken him, but they didn't. They could have taken all of the disciples, but it seems almost like They weren't taking them that seriously. So maybe Peter wasn't in danger at all. Maybe he was just embarrassed. It's impossible for us to really understand the dynamics of that night. But it's also impossible for us to know what we would do if we were in Peter's shoes. But I still think it's important that we ask. Most of us know how we would hope to react and just a bit before this, Peter had laid it out. He's, he told Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm ready. But when the light exposed Peter's face and he was recognized, it ultimately exposed his heart and he wasn't actually ready at all. So he followed at a distance. He lied. He denied And when the light exposes our hearts, sometimes we aren't ready either. C.S. Lewis, in his masterpiece, Mere Christianity, he addresses this phenomenon. And Lewis talks about how at the end of the day, when he's looking over the sins that he's committed and confessing them, he says nine times out of 10, the most obvious thing that comes to his mind are when he sulked or snapped or sneered or snubbed or stormed. And I can relate to that. He said the excuse that he gives in his mind is that the provocation caught him off guard and he didn't have time to collect himself. But listen to what he says next. Surely what a man does when he's taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in the cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar. But if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. When the light is switched on, we often don't have time to compose ourselves, right? Like when someone cuts us off in traffic or when someone catches us when we're hungry or tired or lonely or embarrassed or afraid. When the light was switched on, Peter lied and denied he knew Jesus and we wanna be able to cut him some slack 
because he was caught off guard, but he did it two more times. Verse 58 says, and a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. That's how I read it in my head anyway. But the servant girl said, Peter was with Jesus. The accusation of this man is that Peter was one of them, meaning a follower of Jesus. And this was true, but again, Peter lies. And again, we don't know why Peter lied. As I mentioned before, he may have feared for his life, but it's also possible he was embarrassed to be associated with Jesus' followers. Like when your team has lost, you try to distance yourself from it. And maybe, much like today, there was a stigma or a stereotype that went along with being a follower of Jesus. And maybe Peter got a little bit starstruck when he was around the Jewish authorities. Like even though they were doing some awful things, he still kind of looked up to them and wanted them to respect him. Because they were the cool crowd. Even years later in the book of Galatians, Paul would call Peter out for acting differently around the cool Jews and treating the Gentiles differently. But again, I can relate to that. Um, From time to time, I tell stories about how I was in a touring band. I did it for like 13 years, so there's a good chance if I have a story, it's going to fall in there somewhere. Uh, But uh, we were a Christian band. We were in a weird niche because uh, we didn't play the kind of music that you hear on Christian radio. We played this artsy indie rock, but it was all about Jesus. And so we were too Christian for the general market, but a little too weird and artsy for the Christian market. But every night, wherever we played, whether we were in a bar or whether we were in a youth room at a church, I spoke from the stage about Jesus because that's what my songs were about. And that was the reason I wrote music. And that's actually how I learned to speak in front of people because I was terrified of it before that. And see, there's a way I can tell you about that and I can make myself sound really good like I was this bold, unrelenting witness to Christ. And I remember a night um, that we were playing this huge packed uh, venue in Charlotte, North Carolina. And when I started talking about Jesus, the sound guy cut us off and said, you're done, get off the stage. But I actually walked to the edge of the stage and I started yelling for people to hear, shouting what I wanted them to know about Jesus. And it was, it was kind of scary and exciting because there were a lot of people clapping and shouting amen. And there were other people throwing things and booing. But in the moment I was like caught up in it, caught up in the glory of it. But when we played a show with a secular band that I looked up to, I always tried my hardest to come across to them as a cool Christian, you know, not like those other Christians. And I don't remember a single time that I tried to talk about Jesus to any of them because I cared too much what they thought of me. And the truth is, you could say I was embarrassed of Jesus. I think anyone who makes any sort of art that's associated with faith knows this tension because we take our art very seriously, but we aren't taken seriously because of our faith in Christ. And that's the world that I know, but I know it doesn't apply only to the arts. 
It applies to academics and science and politics and business. But we're so shocked by this as if we should expect to just be embraced by the world. But Jesus never promised that. In fact, he promised quite the opposite. In John 15, when Jesus was talking to his disciples just before he was arrested, he says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But we don't want to be hated by the world. And I've known lots of people over the years who wanted to be cool or relevant or appear intelligent more than they wanted to follow Jesus. And they actually left him behind so that the world would love them. But there are little ways that we all make these sorts of choices every day because it's so much easier to stay away from anything that may potentially be awkward or offensive like Jesus. So I ask you to consider, have you ever done this? And what are the ways that you're still doing this? Before this pivotal night came, Jesus told his disciples in Peter's hearing, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But Peter followed at a distance and Peter didn't deny himself. He denied Jesus and he would do it still a third time. Verse 59, it says, and after an interval of about an hour still Another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. And in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, it clarifies that Peter's accent is what gave him away as being Galilean. But again, the accusation is similar to the servant's girl, that Peter was with Jesus, which again was true. He was with Jesus. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about which again was a lie. He knew exactly what this man was talking about. He knew so much. He knew what it was like to see the blind receive their sight and to see the lame walk and to see lepers cleansed, to see the dead raised. He knew what Jesus preached from his boat. He knew what Jesus preached from the mount. And you'd think, perhaps, that if you'd seen all these things and had such a close relationship with Jesus, that it would be virtually impossible to deny him. But it's sobering. If Simon Peter, who witnessed almost every famous gospel account of Jesus, could deny him, who are we to think that we won't? Perhaps one of the most significant things that Peter, as part of Jesus' inner circle, had witnessed was the transfiguration. Just shortly before this night, Peter had seen Jesus glorified in the presence of God, had heard the voice of God, and saw Elijah and Moses there. 
Years later, Peter would write about this encounter in 2 Peter. Listen to what he said. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. For we were with him. Peter was with Jesus in ways that no one could have fathomed. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And when the rooster crowed, the words that Jesus had spoken just a few hours earlier pierced his heart. Jesus said, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. In verse 61 is maybe one of the most heartbreaking passages in scripture. It says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I long to see the face of Jesus, but I cannot imagine how heartbreaking it would be to see his face right after denying him. The rooster, of course, was the alarm clock for people before there were alarm clocks. It's how they woke up and the rooster crowed and woke Peter up and he realized what he'd done and he went out and wept bitterly. So last week, Tyler preached on Judas and his betrayal. When we read about Peter, this account, it's called a denial. But I think it's a betrayal too. Because I want you to imagine what it would be like if your best friend told people they don't even know you. And in some ways, I imagine that Peter's denial hurt Jesus more than being betrayed by a man who he already didn't trust. So what's the difference between what Judas did and what Peter did? Obviously, what Judas did had greater consequences, but as far as the effect on their hearts, there wasn't a great difference between their betrayals. The difference is in what they did after their betrayals. Simply put, Peter was broken and humble and repentant, and Judas wasn't. I'm convinced that a good person, a good parent, a good spouse is not someone who gets it right all the time. It's someone who is humble and broken and repentant when they get it wrong. To be humble, you have to acknowledge the fact that you deny Christ all the time. We're rarely, if ever, faced with situations in which we may be persecuted if we claim Christianity, but there are subtle ways that we deny Christ most every day. And just over the course of studying this passage, I've had several mornings where I would get up early before the rest of my family and and try to spend time with Jesus before the kids were awake and my calendar started dictating my day. And I would have this sweet time of prayer and reading Psalms and things like that. And I would just be enraptured in the love of Christ. But then as soon as a baby's crying and I don't have time to eat breakfast and I'm 
rushing out to the door late for a first appointment, I find myself snapping at my wife over something silly. I see the rats in the cellar, you know, and I find that I'm being someone altogether different from the person I thought I was going to be at 6 a.m. It's not that much different from Peter talking a big game about how he'll go to death for Jesus and then denies even knowing him. We do this every day in subtle ways. But what I would want you to learn from the story of Peter is that one snapshot of moral failure does not define us. If this one night was all that we knew of Peter, we would see him as a horrible person and we would have expressions like, don't be a Peter. He would be worse than doubting Thomas. But what we know is that Peter was repentant and Peter went on to live out what he knew to be true and he even died for the gospel. In fact, I would venture to say that this one night was a more pivotal moment in Peter's life than even his calling or witnessing the transfiguration. It was the night that he failed, that he failed Jesus. And it was the night that he repented and he decided never again. The fascinating thing is just a few weeks later, really just a few weeks later, Peter and John would stand before Caiaphas and Annas, the same high priest that Jesus stood before. And in Acts 4, this is what it says. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Notice that phrase, they had been with Jesus. It's the very accusation that two people made to Peter leading to his denials. But now Peter doesn't deny it. He owns it and wears it like a badge of honor. And Luke tells us that Caiaphas and Annas called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What have you seen and heard? What has Jesus done in your life? That's your testimony. You don't have to know a lot of Greek or Hebrew or have a degree in theology. The best witness you have is what you know. It's like the man who was born blind in John 9 that Joe talked about a few weeks ago. He said, one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Friends, we're not going to do this perfectly. I'm not going to. There are times that you fear, um, you desire to be respected or shame keeps you from proclaiming the truth, but know that grace abounds and that Jesus is faithful. Even when our hearts are far from him, this is the good news of the gospel. So this is not a reason to despair. Like Peter, we can learn from our mistakes and we can resolve to stand for truth. And that eventually did cost Peter's life, but it also led countless others to eternal life. 
So whatever this morning keeps you from denying yourself and following Jesus, whether it's fear or embarrassment, the desire to be liked, the desire to be respected, I ask you to join me and confess it and surrender it. And let's ask for the grace to pick up our cross and follow in the dust of Rabbi Jesus this week. Let's pray. Holy God, we confess that Sometimes we are ashamed or embarrassed. Sometimes we fear man far more than we fear you. And Lord, we thank you that one dark night doesn't define us. We thank you that even when our hearts are far from you, you call us your own. Lord, forgive us when we explicitly deny you. Forgive us when we deny you by speaking ill of our brothers and sisters who were made in your image. Forgive us when we deny you by hearing your word and knowing and understanding and doing the exact opposite of it. Lord, as somber as this story is, as heavy as it is, we rejoice, Lord, that it wasn't the end of Peter's story. And today is not the end of our story. We rejoice that we are forgiven. And we long for the day when you will do away with sin and death forever. And we will be with you. And we pray all this in the glorious name of Christ. Amen.